This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. Uh, David, we're getting into Emmy Phase 2 voting season. We still have lots of Emmy stuff to talk about, but there are movies to get into as well, and not just movies in the imminent fall festival season. Great movies playing in theaters right now. (laughs) And you talked to the director of one of them, Iris Axe. Yeah, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, and I was very glad to see that the movie was uh, an art house success over the weekend. It made some money. We're talking about Passages, by the way. That was that was on me. I, did, I forgot to say the movie title. Yeah. Passages. Iris Sachs's Passages. Iris Sachs's Passages, uh, which we talked about a little bit on the show last week, and uh, which Ira was uh, a lovely person to talk to about. Uh, yeah, I mean, you. we've talked about his work on the podcast before. I think I think every time Love is Strange comes up, we kind of like sigh deeply about how, <laughs> how much we love that movie. Passages is a really different movie, I believe, from Love is Strange, but kind of fits with his work. He's not a provocateur exactly, but he tends to tackle subjects and especially subjects about human sexuality that a lot of other filmmakers don't. Yeah, he has a very, I would say, nuanced interest in intersection of romance and sexuality and particularly in queer relationships because he's you know he's a gay director he's made a number of queer films um understanding the particular mess uh of those the way those things overlap in those relationships and and this movie is kind of the ultimate statement piece in that regard in that it follows uh a guy who is in a relationship with another guy who blows everything up on a whim by you know pursuing an attraction to a woman. Um, And and you get this really heated triangle between the three of them that goes in some pretty unexpected places and I think lands on a surprisingly poignant note uh, after nearly two hours of chaos. <laughs> um, this might come up in the conversation as well, but you did a profile of Franz Rogowski, who's one of the stars of the film, the, the agent of chaos, uh, I think. So, <laughs> and um, yeah, so if people want to learn more about the film, they could certainly read that piece. Yeah, we, we did talk about him and, and this performance, um, which is, in my mind, pretty extraordinary. And I think Ira in general is is a really underrated and 
brilliant director of actors. Like in Love is Strange, it's the combination of John Lithgow and Alfred Molina is really beautiful. Little Men, he directs mostly children in the lead roles who are amazing in that movie. Frankie, his last movie, which was received more mixed reception, starred Isabelle Huppert. Um, and you can really go back. We talked about an earlier movie of his that starred Rachel McAdams. And out of that movie, he realized, uh, he says on this podcast, that she was one of the great actors that he's ever worked with. So mm. yeah, he's it's a long line of great performances in his movies. And in this movie also, Ben Wisha and Adele Exarchopoulos, you know, you get really, really powerful performances across the board. Uh, well, I'm excited to see Passages, but in the meantime, I will happily listen to this interview. Let's hear your conversation with Iris Axe. We're here with Ira Sachs, uh, writer and director of Passages, I'd say one of the best films of the year so far, and for better and maybe for worse, one of the most talked about. <laughs> Hi, Ira. Hmm. Hi, David. Nice to hear you. You too. The The worst part is uh, referring to the NC-17 rating that the MPAA gave this film, which I know you've talked about quite a bit, and your distributor, Mubi, is deciding to release the film unrated uh, as a result of that. I wanted to zoom out a little bit and ask you just about the conversations that have come out uh, as you've heard them since that decision and since you've started talking about it. I think it's opened up a broader conversation about particularly queer film and uh, really art house film in general uh, and the conditions uh, that we're we're all working with here. Um, how have you mm -hmm. observed it? Um, well, I, I, I have to say I've sort of been on a one-sided part of that conversation because I haven't I haven't been reading so much um, except mm -hmm. what I happen to say so uh, <laughs> you can tell me a little bit about I, because I'm glad to hear that because for me something like the NC17 um, uh, situation with with passages is less an issue for myself as a filmmaker and certainly not an issue for the film that we made which was a very free film mm -hmm. um, but it more brings up my my question which is why the MPA still exists like yeah, which seems to me the simple question that we should be asking ourselves as a community of filmmakers and artists and an industry is why do we still follow uh, a set of rules that are, were created in the 1920s by the Catholic Church and the Hays Code? So mm -hmm. why? Why is this still in place? Yeah, and I think that's a question that is expanded beyond, beyond you asking it. I think it's one that a lot of people that I've heard um, are asking right now. It also just brings to mind... First of all, your experience with Love is Strange, which, in my view, got a very unfair R rating. That's a very gentle movie. And I think more broadly, the way we talk about movies of this scope now, because to your point, they exist pretty far outside of what this system was designed for, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, the system was designed for control, and it's still in place to control. Yeah. So I think it's Fair actually enough. the same. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think it's exactly as meant to be. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, only kind of the rear, rear view men, mirror do I think like, what? Love is strange. Like basically a very nicely made after school movie like it's a it's a film like it should it could have been on in like i could have watched it when i was 12 on yep. tv but like somehow you were told to be warned to bring children under the age of 18 to the cinema like something's wrong there and i think something um, needs to change yeah with this film uh first of all it's set in in paris um, and i know you have a relationship to the city it's a movie that 
feels very authentic to the city, which I think is not always true of American filmmakers who make movies in Europe. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship to the city and, and the process of, you know, even just location scanning for this movie and what it looked like really practically uh, to make the movie there? Yeah. You know, I first lived in Paris in, in 1986. I was like uh, a junior in college and I didn't have any friends and I didn't speak French very well. And I was lonely and I ended up going to the movies two or three times a day. And over a course of three months, I saw 197 movies and my film life and my life in general was changed. I, I just felt a relationship to being in the movie theater that felt very complete uh, I felt myself watching the movies. So, and it was also, I felt a kind of companionship, which is in a way what, what made me uh, make a movie like Passages. I wanted to make that kind of film, which the audience would connect to in an intimate way that seemed special and unique. Um, uh, I ended up over the last 30 years going back to Paris often. I've had relationships in Paris. I've had sex in Paris. I've had breakups in Paris. Hmm. Um, I've cried there. And I think like, I just feel really comfortable in that city and with the people there. So it was a natural fit to make the movie um, in that city. I've also been welcomed because there's a history of personal cinema that's still very active in France. So my producer, yep. Saeed Ben Saeed, loves the same kind of movies I'm, I do and, and, and wanted to continue making films with me. So that's also what you're doing. You're going to where you're welcomed financially and otherwise. Yeah, I mean, you think you can even relate that a little bit to the MPAA situation in terms of right. what uh, American filmmakers are, where they're able to make personal cinema, uh, as you're saying. For you, what did the process of kind of realizing that, oh, this is maybe not where I make a movie like this anymore? Like, how, how do you come to realize that? Is it just sort of a natural experience over the course of making films? You know, I have to say it begins with the story. So I'm now working on two films set in New York City, and, right. and I plan to make them here. So I, I wouldn't say um, I'm at the end of my American uh, career. I, I, um, I'm American. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. You know, I'm mm -hmm. like born and bred here. And so I have stories to tell here. Um, so you know, let's, let's see what happens. I think, I think that part of what I'm doing with this film is playing and being open to the, the impact of particularly French cinema on me as an artist and allowing myself a kind of um, freedom of bringing that into the film that I made, like being very free. Not, it's not a film of references, but it's a film of relationship to mm -hmm. a certain kind of cinema that has meant the most to me. I've I've also seen you position the feel and scope of this film to, you know, the work of John Cassavetes, movies like Ordinary People, stuff that has been boxed out of <laughs> the American landscape. I would, though, argue that, you know, in this new globalized system, you have found a way to kind of build that kind of filmography, however, is doable in a way that is not necessarily doable within, you know, the U.S. movie by movie. Can you talk a little bit about just figuring that out? You, you mentioned this for this movie. This is a movie that you would make in Paris. But like, how have you learned to navigate that movie by movie? Because I imagine not every director has been able to figure that out. 
Well, it was actually a very particular moment for me, which was 2008. And I think a lot of things change based on like global history that we don't always notice how we were personally impacted. So I think the recession changed everything in American cinema and in, and, and in particular in American independent cinema. A lot mm -hmm. of people left and, and money disappeared. And I had written a film at that point um, called The Goodbye People. It was based on a book by Gavin Lambert, the gay British um, screenwriter who lived in Hollywood in the 1960s. And I had cast Michael Shannon, uh, Patricia Clarkson, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Anton Yelchin, uh, Damian Lewis, uh, Liv Tyler. I had a quite a... That's quite a, a cast. A, a, a cast. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ben Foster was also going to be in it, playing Charles Manson. And I couldn't raise one dollar hmm. over over a multiple year period, and I really was like, "Ah, oh, this is not working, and something is not working." And I ended up making a, a ten minute film called Last Address, which probably is my, my now my most seen film with with the resources which were available to me, which was it. It's, I spent two thousand dollars, and I could make this really personal work, yeah. and I kind of from then looked. At, at my job differently, I realized I was going to be the the instigator. And in a way, I, I became my own producer. So I became the person who raised money and I and I raised it out of that system. Um, when I finished Love is Strange, which was a success in the independent marketplace mm -hmm. and was reviewed, I wrote Little Men and, you know, uh, thinking, OK, I'm coming off of something and Little Men, no one would make the film. Not one company would make that film. And so I, again, had to raise the money for the film independently. And and so I guess I'm just a hustler, you know, in a certain way. Um, I made my first feature, The Delta, the same time that Craig Brewer was making uh, his first film. And then he followed it up with Hustle and Flow. And I felt like we both understood something, which is like the song and dance. Mm. And it's a song and dance, by the way, that as white men, we really could do easier than most people. Like we, we knew the people with money or I found the people with money and I, and I, and so my access was also really central and that's part of passages as well is like, is like, I do get to make these films and why, do, why do certain men have power and then what, what do they do with it? You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? 
Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LittleGoldMen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash LittleGoldMen. This period you're talking about, I, I think it immediately followed Married Life, which is a movie I actually wanted to ask you about. Uh, I would say it's a movie that's a little bit less discussed in your filmography, maybe, compared mm-hmm. to your debut mm-hmm. or this the 2010 stretch. That movie also had a pretty uh, extraordinary cast. I think it premiered in Toronto and sold there. What was your experience of the reaction and rollout to that movie that clearly led to this kind of place for you of, of like a kind of reckoning? You know, that movie I made, like all my others, like it, it was a film that came from someplace very personal. At that point, all my films were about people who, who kind of hid things from people they were in relationships with. There were some like, triangles in that movie, too, speaking of past. Yeah, <laughs> but the difference between that period and this period is in that period, uh, my films were all about the illicit because yes. I was also living living that at the time. <laughs> and and you look at passages and nothing is hidden. There's no shame in passages, Very which true. I think is really an interesting transition um, in terms of generations, in terms of, of, of me in, as a storyteller, what interests me. Like the illicit doesn't interest me anymore. I'm repelled by it. Hmm. So um, I think that film, I mean, the way I remember that film is that I got a lot of money, but it felt like all my other films. I had I had 15 million to make it. Um, Sidney Kimmel produced it. I had Chris Cooper, Patricia Clarkson, Rachel McAdams, and Pierce Brosnan as my as my wonderful cast, and we made it personally. Like that's just the way I work. Like ultimately, it's just a group of people getting together, and I didn't feel it was that different um, an experience. I think that film is, you know, it's maybe working in genre because it's a suspense film um, mm-hmm. that was was um, not something I was super versed in. And I think there's so there's a way in which if you look at the film as a genre film, you, you know, you might say like, oh, it does it fail I, in that realm? Maybe, maybe not. But it's also just like playing with the genre in a certain way. Um, I was trying things new. I, I, I've seen that film. I mean, to me, I think what sticks in my mind is Rachel McAdams in that film. Like mm. she's really, it's just a, and, and, and I have to say all of them, but I, and Chris Cooper is also amazing, but, but Rachel McAdams watched that film and yeah. there's, she's really one of the great actors of, of our generation. She really is something she's, she has this quality, which is, reminds me a little bit of Natalie Wood. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and I, I think specifically of Splendor in the Grass it's really something so deep and vulnerable and she's a movie star. And that quality is really interesting. That contrast is really interesting. And it's something I played with in passages, certainly, which is everyday people played by extraordinary movie stars. Hmm. And indeed in this movie, you have three of them who I think each bring a different kind of presence. Um, Franz Rogowski has gotten, I would say the most attention given that he plays when we spoke previously, you called him a fun character. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of passed that description along to others who sometimes don't agree with that because they find him too maddening. Um, but certainly it gives him a lot of room to play. I wanted to ask you about Ben, because one of the New York movies that you mentioned that you're you're planning, uh, I think, stars him. So you're going to be working with him again. Um, and he brings such a 
heartbreaking tenderness to this role. And I'm just curious, like the process of working with him and how, how you found his energy in contrast to Franz's. Oh, it's interesting. On set, they almost feel um, so similar, even though as people, they're so different. Um, but they each have a, a kind of attentiveness to what's going on that is very tangible and pleasurable as a director. Mm -hmm. Like their, their, their presence is really something. And I think what happened really like on day one is they both recognized how great the others were. And they were mm -hmm. like, so they had to show And because I, I don't rehearse with my actors before I start shooting. Um, in a way I set up a, an environment in which they, something incredible has to happen or we can't continue. And I think that's really scary for the actors, but I think it's also, a kind of pleasurable environment that is erotic in some ways. Mm. Like you have to be connected in order for it to work. You have to listen in a really intimate way for in order for it to work. It's a, I, I keep finding when I'm doing these interviews that like, like you, David, like you listen mm. and that makes it much easier for me to perform. Mm. I like that. <laughs> Yes, I think listening is very important uh, in that context, especially in this movie, because there are there are some really searing silences at times. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that uh, I've seen a few times now, and it shakes me in a different kind of way every time. In terms of the conditions you're talking about of, of creating a set like that, I would imagine it comes from some level of, of experience and confidence. You know, I think of John Lithgow and Alfred Molina in Love is Strange and that beautiful intimacy uh, that they create certainly married life, the cast there. Um, and even little men, like the, the kids who were like, those performances were so extraordinary to me when I saw that movie for the first time, how has the, your process of creating those conditions been refined over the years? Well, one thing I felt with this film is that I was tapping on instincts that were from when I was very young in my twenties and started to making out making films. But I was working on a level of technical and maybe emotional um, ability. My craft was more mature, and that felt exciting. Like I could feel it on set that I that I that I proceeded with a kind of confidence that maybe I didn't always have or didn't, in a way, deserve <laughs> previously. Yeah. And and I think part of that was maybe also coming out of the pandemic, where I just felt like I was alive, mm -hmm. and that seemed like like everyone, like we didn't know how that period would end. And so it felt in a way liberating because there was, there was nothing to lose. Like we could just try to do the best with what we have. So I think that that made this experience very special. I think um, my, I had a relationship with the cinematographer, Jose DeHai, which was unique in my career. Like she really saw the images that I have always wanted to see in my in my work she understood space and light and the body in a way that was really um personal to me very close to me mm. so um and i guess maybe i come in a little bit as the father these days more than the the, mm -hmm. the peer with my with my with my actors i think i mean i probably look and feel a little like the analyst you might want hmm like I'm, I'm the I'm the white-haired Jewish guy who will listen really, really closely and also give you space to discover. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard you talk about identity with this film, and 
the lack of labels, which I found very exciting about this movie. Um, but the way you kind of came into it in, in a generational way and understanding those dynamics for these particular characters. Yeah. You know, when I wrote the film and I, I, I shared it with friends, um, people would be like, well, that's never going to work because that guy's a gay guy. And now he's <laughs> sleeping with a woman. Like, how are you going to get him to sleep with a woman in the film? And I was just like, I don't think it's going to be a problem. I re- but a lot of people right. sort of question that as a, as a moment. And it, and it doesn't exist in the film at all as a transition either, really. And I think it's generational. I think for these actors, for these characters, um, things are different. And there is a kind of almost like a, a post-queer mm-hmm. uh, sensibility. And by the way, I think labels are super useful. I think ghettos are necessary. I think like, yes. well, let's call ghettos like um, subcultures. Like yes. I, I, I know why they exist and I love them. You know, as an, yes. I don't think everyone should be the same, and and I think the experience of people is super unique. But but I think in this film, um, the transition around gender just didn't exist as drama. A lot of other things are drama, so yes. we didn't need that one. It also it also feels very rooted in Franz's performance. The sort of selfish, uh, brazen careening between these two people. Um, you immediately understand that it's kind of, it is in a way, there's a post-queer kind of understanding of the way he's operating in particular. Well, I think he um, was given a certain kind of freedom with this role um, that he, he questioned right at the beginning. He said, really, can I do these things? And I said, yes. And he said, are you sure? And I should, I said, just watch Jimmy Cagney. And really, that was the end of the conversation. It's like once you once you see what men in films have done um, in behaving as characters badly, but behaving as actors as beauty, yeah. Then then there is this this possibility. And and for me, Franz is like an entertainer. You know, he's like a vaudeville performer. Mm-hmm. And I think that that it's part of the pleasure of the film is watching his his is seeing him act even though it seems like he's not. But you feel it. There's a gap between Franz Rogowski and Tomas that's important for the film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Sundance and, and debuting the film here. You have had three, I'd say, really strong successes at the festival in particular, uh, in addition to your debut, which won the Grand Jury Prize. So what about... David, you're the- so knowledgeable. <laughs> I, you really, I try. You really, you're, I you're really, it's impressive. It's impressive. <laughs> I, I, try, I try to prepare. Um, but, well, I, I've also been a fan of yours for a long time. So yeah. so part of that knowledge yeah. is rooted in uh, just knowing knowing your movies. Um, right. We were having actually a conversation on this show last week about this movie kind of feeling like a can movie. Uh, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I'm curious about the decision to take this movie to Sundance where you've had a lot of success before. And it obviously had a pretty successful premiere again, not only in terms of its response, but you know the acquisition market has changed so much. And yet this movie was able to get off the ground really quickly. I'm really, I, I must say, I'm really grateful to my agent, Craig Castell at, at WME, who was like, Take it to Sundance. Take hmm. it to Sundance, and and he really knew the the way that that this film uh, might possibly be received there. And I would also say that Cannes is a festival that chose this year to open with a Johnny Depp movie. Mm-hmm. And I think we're talking about a film festival that is um, the people in charge have a certain politic 
that's really important to them. And I, I, I can't say whether Johnny Depp should or should not make movies, but it's when you're making an opening film, you're um, when you're deciding what that is, you're deciding which films you want to promote and which which conversations yes. you want to engage in. And that's a big choice to say the conversation that seems most important to me in this moment of world history is the conversation of around Johnny Depp. And and I feel like, on the other hand, Sundance is a festival that has always privileged voices that are marginalized in other festivals that are put into the the back of other festivals and Sundance says these are actually the film films that mean the most to us. Yeah, this the, there is an interesting evolution there. Um they can also had The Idol this year as their TV selection which, you know, whatever people think of that show. Um was certainly selected I think for its attention value and you had the the, the Depp uh generations <laughs> as part of that conversation. Well, I think these festivals in general, um, if you look at the history of who, which films they show, if they're films by gay people, they're about straight people. And mm. if they're films about gay people, they're made by straight people. So films mm. by gay people, about gay people, are not welcome. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Well, let's let's talk about Frankie, which was your can premiere, your most recent feature before Passages. Um, it was not your warmest received, and I think that was your first experience at Cannes. So how do you reflect on that particular experience? Well, to me, it was like a moment of joy, to be honest, because it was a premiere huh. with a group of people um, who I loved, who had made what I feel is one of my most tender and human works. I agree. And, you know, having the chance to work with Isabel pair, but also people that I had worked with before, like Marissa Tomei and Greg Kinnear, um, who were giving these incredibly textured human performances. Uh, I felt like really um, happy to be able to share the film with, with an audience. And I feel like in France, it was received with, with a lot of love. I think in the U.S., it's, a, it's an unusual film. It's a, it's a film out of, out of place with kind of the concerns of American cinema. But I'm okay with that. That seems like a good thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, if there's one theme to this conversation, that seems like probably a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you know, I, I what I notice is, for example, I saw um, the the recent Philippe Garel film, which was at Berlin. It's called like the the Golden Chariot, or and I thought it was a masterpiece, absolute mm -hmm. masterpiece. And I read the reviews from American um, critics for that film, and they're like, he's it's an elegy to the kind of movies that no longer get made, and and that will no longer get made, the kind of movies that are, that have disappeared. And I was just like, what are they saying? It's an elegy to good movies. Mm. Like literally, this is just a good movie that's deep and complex, personal, human, multi-layered, multi-generational multi about life and parenting and love and history and art. It's like a, it's like the best novel you've ever read. 
And somehow hmm. that's supposed to be something that, that we no longer think is important. Um, so I don't know. I think like you just got to try to make good stuff. Yeah. And maybe in a way, try to remember those films in that style of cinema. I mean, you've talked about passages really being in conversation with various eras uh, that are not dominant anymore, certainly. Do you feel that that's going to be an important kind of guiding principle for your work going forward is to infuse the spirit of that cinema? Well, it's less a choice for me. It's more how I make movies, which is in competition and in dialogue and in in some ways in fear of, of the people who have been my heroes and who I will never be as good as. So, and that's, you know, uh, Harold Bloom talks about the anxiety of influence is the, is, is the central concept in the creation of art, which is that you're always as an artist looking at, at what came before you and, and, and really wanting to like kill the maker. Like you're in, you're in a death grip with the people who, who existed before you. But that, that grip is also, the energy that makes you makes you know how you want to say things and how you want to express things differently and how you want to be young or younger than those other people. So for me, Ozu and Piala and Cassavetes and Jean Eustache and, and Chantal Ackerman, this is like my, these are my family. Like really, they're as much important to me as my mother and my, my cousins and, and experiences I had when I was young. Like they're all me. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. Our our book club is ongoing. We're reading Priscilla Presley's memoir, Elvis and Me, if you want to catch up. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. You can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich. And how about you, David? David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.